When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is a proud member of the Fan Hub 100. Football without fans is nothing, so we've partnered with FanHub to put fans first. Search FanHub app to play your part in the journey. Welcome to the 1865 Forest Ramble podcast. As the song says, it's Christmas time, but there's no need to be afraid, I don't think. Forest have been in a terrible run of form with uh, that run of six defeats in seven matches including playing the top six in a row and that has really got all the fans down but there's been some signs that things might just improve in the last couple of matches before the Christmas break. Um, I am joined today by Stephen Topless. Hi Stephen. Hello. Uh, Baz is here as well. Hello. Hello. And the Married on the Midlands. Welcome. Ho ho ho. Ho, 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 indeed. Um, let's start by, you know, talking about on-pitch matters. Um, the results have been pretty pretty bad, haven't they? And, and what was a situation where fans were saying, OK, it's been a terrible first kind of 10 matches, but there's time to turn it around, then became a situation where things were really quite despondent. Um, Baz, in one of your recent match reports, you did say, make no mistake, this is a relegation fight. Um, it wasn't helped by the fact we were playing the top six in the space of six matches, was it? No, um, and what I meant by that is, as Forest fans over the last, whatever, 20 years or so, we've all seen either Forest being involved in an actual relegation battle or coming very close to being in a relegation battle, maybe at this time of the season, it looking like that, and us having just pulled out by the second half of the season. and. The thing that I always take from those is if we're playing well but not getting the points, then that's when you should be worried. And that's what we've been doing. And and they have been the top six sides and they've been very, very good sides. 
but we've been playing very, very well and not getting the breaks. And um, I made the point actually that the Maradona and the Midlands said in the Norwich game, wasn't it? Where that goal that they got that was deflected, that's exactly the sort of thing that happens when you're top of the table. It's exactly the sort of goal that goes in when you're bottom of the table because luck never goes for you. And that was what was really, really worrying about this little run. Okay, and to Maradona on the Midlands, um, you also um, made the point, um, you did our, our post-match report from the Bournemouth game, and you were saying as well that Bournemouth basically, they look like a Premier League team, they looked a complete class above everything else, and, and I still think that, and, and Norwich haven't necessarily been playing that well, but they're top of the table, and they're starting, now they've got some injured players coming back, they're starting to turn it on. It's a two-tier division this year, isn't it? Which hasn't been helped by um, the effect of COVID on the transfer market. Yeah, I mean, I always thought the three relegated clubs, if they managed to hold on to their players, would be the three strongest teams in the division. Where I thought we'd sort of fit in would be sort of where we've been last couple of years with Bristol City, Swansea, Cardiff, that that sort of bracket. And um, it's just been a bit of a reality check playing those top six teams where we're sort of, really a marked difference between us and them um it's yeah it is they're, they're, the quality at the top is is a lot better um there's a there's a big group in the middle of the, of the table which are very similar um and it's we can be, we might still be in that group you don't know if we, we need to go on a bit of a run but we've just shown no signs of going on a run and it's just a lack of goals that's that's the thing that's really um, put it in my mind that we are in a relegation battle because it, it's, it's normally teams who can't score goals that will struggle to stay up. It's just we've just well, I mean, we've won four games all season. It's um, it's pretty poor, and we just don't create enough still to win football matches, and that's that's what's going to cost us maybe. But just to contrast that and to come to you, Stephen, um, obviously we've been getting match reports where we're getting the views of the opposing fans. And on the whole, they've been saying, actually, Forest have worried them at times. It's just that Forest haven't been able to make those periods of playing OK. They haven't been able to make them count. Um, and also, you know, that boils down to confidence as well. So you don't capitalise when, when you're on top and then you, have a, you concede another soft goal and, and then your heads go down. Would you say that's a fair summation from where you've been sitting? I would. I've been impressed with the way Forrest have played in, in spells, uh, particularly during that run of games against the top six. We, we actually didn't look too bad. It was just we'd get into the final third and the final pass wasn't there, the cross wasn't there or... The finish just wasn't what was needed. You know, headers going over the bar, shots being scuffed wide, hitting the post. It it just wasn't quite falling for us. But it, it, it comes back to being good enough and almost creating your own luck. And that's something I think we haven't really done all that much this season. You know, we've given away poor goals that have been preventable. We've had moments like at Reading, for example, where... 15 minutes in, we're more or less doing okay in the game against you know a team that was going along well at the time. And then an error from the goalkeeper and a handball on the line and suddenly we're up against it, um, particularly when the penalty's converted. It's moments like that where we're almost, we've almost been our own worst enemy. And um, 
Maradon in the Midlands, just to come back to you as well, there's an, a really interesting interview with um, Sean O'Driscoll, which came up on the uh, Garibaldi Red podcast. And I'm not in the, in the habit of uh, promoting other podcasts, particularly when they are backed by media organisations, but it was an interesting interview. And thinking about matches like Reading and like Bournemouth, for example, um, O'Driscoll said after the Bournemouth match, well, I was watching that match and Bournemouth expected to win, but Forrest just turned up hoping to get something. Um, it's quite telling that, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that that does um, describe us very well for not only this season, but sort of the last latter half of uh, last season. Um, we're not playing with that sort of confidence where we've got a method of play that we know we can rely on and we're going to go and get a result and, and win a game. Um, yeah, that's a spot on analysis. But I mean, that, that comes from having good players who are playing with confidence. I think we've, we've been lacking the confidence and also at, at moments we've been lacking leadership as well. I think and, until Joe Worrell came back into the team, we were, we were very much... Uh, Missing people who could lead us. It was with the with there being no crowd in 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 the matches. You can you can hear everything that the site being shouted on the pitch and from the sidelines. It's very noticeable how much Forrest are being uh, coached during games by uh, Chris Hewton, Stephen Reed, and even Michael Dawson when he came back. So they're trying to provide that little bit of leadership um, on uh, that's not really there on the pitch. Um, in the midst of the bad run, I did have a little bit of hope in the thought that when Joe Worrell came into the team, when Stan Bissau came into the team, when Lewis Graben came into the team, it would improve us. And I think we've started to see that in the last couple of games. Um, so it's, it's not as bleak as it looked or felt at, at certain points during that run when we just weren't going to score a goal and we just kept on losing. Um, so there is a little bit of hope there. Green shoots of recovery. Um Interestingly, uh, firstly, Stephen, um, I'm just going to posit my theory, which is, and I've t- told this to Second Tier Podcast as well, I think that um, Reading are this year's Forest from last season, whereby actually they've had that amazing run at the start where they're totally outscoring themselves. Um, you know, every chance they had, they scored. And sometimes they scored even when there wasn't technically a chance, according to the XG stats. Um, and I think that they are that kind of team. So they're outperforming themselves, they've gone on a good run, and it's set themselves up to be probably top six for the rest of the season. How much of a difference does it make when that first quarter of a season goes the other way and Forest are very much at the wrong end of the table? Does this mean that all hope is now gone? Um, if you'd have asked me that question a couple of weeks ago, I'd, I'd probably say there was still a chance of turning the season into something positive, you know, but I think the gap has opened up a bit too much now between uh, our, our original target, which was probably top six or there or thereabouts for the season. Um, I think now it's a case of we've, we have to treat it as a relegation battle, and get ourselves away from the bottom and at the very least in, move up into mid table and, and, and security that way. And then that's going to give us, the best opportunity, one, of keeping hold of Chris Hewton and two, building on the work that's now started under Chris Hewton and giving him the chance to to really put his stamp on the team. Because that's one thing as well, which throughout this whole run, we, we need to remember, he's not working with his own players. He's had to come in and take on a squad that had 12 new summer signings. And one of those signings, 
that came in after Chris Hewton was Anthony Knockout, and that's the only signing he's made. So that's another thing that we need to factor in is is the the instability, if you like, in the squad. Mm, we'll definitely be talking about that again a little bit later on. Um, Baz, I want to pick up on one of the points that Maradona the Midlands made um, about leadership. Um, now, you and I have been watching football matches together for oh, 25, 30 years, and, and we're always very keen to see who gets the captain's armband. We're, we're kind of old school fans who still put a lot of, a lot of truck in who's wearing the armband. Um, uh, two things. Firstly, uh, it's quite telling. One of the journalists reported, I think it was um, in the match against Sheffield Wednesday, apparently Michael Dawson was in, this, uh, was in the stands and he just yelled at the opposition, opposition bench, oh, do cough, won't you? <laughs> um, and with no fans, you could hear that very clearly. Um, we've been missing a bit of that on the pitch, haven't we? And I've always said that teams who are struggling, you notice that they're struggling because of the amount that the armband gets passed around. So this season, Graben started as captain and it looks as though he is still, from, from yesterday's match, looks as though he's still entrusted as being the first choice skipper, assuming that Dawson's not going to be playing much. Um, but also, Colbach's won the armband. Arter's had it for a bit. McKenna wore it for a bit. And then Worrell has, has taken over... Um, as well when he came back into the team that's five players in less than a third of a season is that symptomatic of 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 a disconnect within the forest squad i think so i think that and actually we touched on this at the end of last season and um, we you and i were talking to elliot from the supports trust the other day and he touched on it as well and it comes down to a bit of the identity of the, the side and the part of the reason that I think you think and I think that the captain and who carries the captain's armband is important is because the captain is then a reflection of the manager on the pitch and the manager is there to stamp a style of play onto the onto the team and if you haven't got a loud captain on the pitch and if you haven't got someone who's there to make sure that the, the manager's instructions are being carried out then you lose that identity and we've lost a lot of identity since lockdown we, we don't seem to know how we want to play and what we want to do. And what has been noticeable is since Worrell's come back, we've started playing like a team and we've started having a bit of shape and a bit of an identity again. And it is actually, and it is actually in some ways very similar to Lamushi's side at the start of it. We've been, I noticed it in the Sheffield Wednesday game, there was a lot of, um, when Hewton first came in, we did a lot of high press and now we're doing a lot more sitting back and waiting for them to make a mistake, which is much more like the Lamushi style. But it is, we have a way of playing or we're starting to gain a way of playing. And that, I think, is, is part of that is Worrell coming back and saying, right, this is what I want you to be doing. And mm. I think that's really important. And, and just to come back to you, Topo, um, Joe Worrell had that, another one of his extraordinary interviews. It sounds like they happen every week, but there's only been a couple, one at the very start of his career and then one last week. Um, so after the Brentford match, he said, we need some desire and honesty from the players. Um, he'd also talked previously about, um, in an interview with The Athletic, saying um, that actually it's a bit of a myth that Sabri wants the team to sit back and, and actually as a defender, what he wants to do is get up to the halfway line as soon as possible. So those are kinds of things to do with mentality that we'd been missing without Worrell. And, and what I'd argue is that part of Forrest's malaise has been that when you've got a disparate bunch of players and you've had the amount of comings and goings, 
You know, we've lost key players like Watson, uh, like Matty Cash, like Thiago Silva. So we've been um, weakened in several areas of the pitch. So actually having a very vocal unifying figure like Worrell wearing the armband becomes very, very important there. What would you think? I think it, I think it does. Having, having Worrell come back in has strengthened the defence. Uh, that's been a, an area that has been letting us down all season. And just having somebody in that dressing room who's not afraid to talk and, and, and let players know where things stand and what they should be doing. You know, he's, one of the quotes he, he, he gave in the, the interview to Radio Nottingham was, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here a bit, sort of, this is Nottingham Forest and we shouldn't be at the bottom of the table and I hate being at the, in the bottom three or at the bottom of the table. So to have that desire to come in and say, like, come on, lads, roll your sleeves up and let's do something about this rather than just, you know, I, it did feel a little bit like we were going through the motions at times in games. If we conceded first, the heads would drop and it was almost, we'd just play our way to another defeat. But since Worrell's come back in, it feels like there's a bit more, desire and a bit more willingness to to fight in games which when you're at the bottom of the table and and you're fighting for points you've, you've got to have that and then look to play your football once you've you've got yourself out of safety and um sorry once you've got yourself to safety that's kind of what I, the way I see it and obviously the quote from from Worrell about we're, we're not friends I think that was more an an indicator of if things aren't going well in the dressing room there's no room for niceties. You've got to be honest and tell it how it is. Well, they're definitely not friends after that interview anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Married on the Midlands, um, on, on that sort of uh, same topic of the Joe Worrell interview, uh, the, apart from the we're not friends quote, which is obviously the most, the most sort of eminently uh, quotable part of the interview, the other thing that he said, which didn't go unnoticed by a lot of people, was talking about players, you know, you don't want people who are here for one last pay day and and the fans had been very critical about firstly signing everyone um, as the transfer policy but then secondly signing players who are you know the wrong side of 30 who are on big contracts um, at least one or two of whom may play as central defensive midfielders um, without naming any names uh, and I don't know is that is that a dig at the club hierarchy um, well I think it's a dig at the hierarchy and the players um, it's been, it was obvious in when we were having that bad run that we weren't making those 50 not, not not just not winning them. We weren't even making the 50-50 challenges in midfield. Um, it was just so easy. And um, Baz talked about the pressing. It was, it was noticeable. We're, I don't know if it, it would seem to just, just, just tailor pressing a lot of games. And they'd turn around in exasperation and shout at the other player saying, why aren't you pressing? And I don't, either that's him taking it on his own to press and going against the coach's instructions or as the other players not following the coach's instructions either way you've got a big problem there and when you bring in sort of those experienced players on big money you need them to perform straight away that's why you've paid that premium on their wages you you don't want them to have a settling in period you want them to go for as our beloved prime minister might say it's, it's, you need an, it's an oven-ready player and you just bang him in there to do a job to, and get you promoted. And it's been so disappointing and it's been so um, critical in the, in the path of why we've sort of failed this season that those players just haven't done it. They've just not done 
offered anything at all. And we, we're not going to name names, but we know who we're talking about. They've just really been very, very disappointing. Yeah, um, I'm going to resist the temptation to make uh, a political comment there about the nature of oven-ready uh, situations. Um, but one thing I will say is that I'm, I'm a big believer that confidence is one of the biggest factors. So we know that we've got players who've got ability, but we've also seen players who've been able to demonstrate ability in the past basically failing to do the simple things and and here I am going to name a name because Tobias Figueredo has been the most obvious example now there are these rumors that for some time he's been he's been missing home he maybe wants to go back to Portugal um I don't know this for certain but uh I think we believe that his girlfriend and and child still live in Portugal so particularly given Covid restrictions and all of that you can't blame him for feeling homesick um but at the same time, we know that when he's at his best, he's a head, head it, kick it type of a solid defender, the kind of guy who, you know, a, a championship centre forward wouldn't want to come up against. And yet he has been consistently a weak point in the team. Um, we can also talk about Brees Samba, who has looked like half of the player. And that's not to necessarily do with ability. It's to do with his, his stature, his confidence. Um, and then... The point I made after the Swansea match um, was that it's very obvious about that lack of confidence because players need an extra touch. So Anthony Knockhart had an excellent um, chance, which he created for himself, but he also delayed his shot by half a second, which meant that the chance, the opening that was there wasn't quite as big as it was. Harry Otter had a chance where he could have had a shot. He took an extra touch and then the shot was blocked at source. Those are kinds of things that you miss when there's a lack of confidence. Would you agree with that, Baz, having, talking about the fact that we've seen plenty of relegation-threatened Forest teams over the last 25 years? Well, it, um, it's a story that we tell again and again and again. We sign these players that on paper look like they're very, very good. And as soon as they arrive, it's like the confidence drains out of them. So there's something not right somewhere. But... It's it's also that that most elusive of qualities. It's the thing that that the great managers can instill in their players, and the not so great managers have uh, are lucky if they catch it. Is um, how do you get a player like I don't know, like Lyle Taylor as well? I'd say the same for him. His first game, I was so impressed with him. It was like if we can get some crosses in, he's going to score a bag load of goals. And then he, he does look like a shadow of the, the same player. He's still putting lots of work in, but as you say, there's that half a second, that half a yard of pace has just gone out of his game. And that's down to the confidence. So how do you reinstill that in someone? Do you if you if someone's not performing, do you put your faith in them and say, I still trust you to do the job, or do you drop them and give them a rest so they don't have to carry the weight on their shoulders? And that's exactly where Hewton's going to have to man, uh, to earn his money. Yeah, um well, I mean you mentioned Hewton there. So just briefly, do you think that Hewton um has some people I've seen people saying well the team haven't improved in fact they've gone backwards since Hewton's come in do you agree with that and do you think that Hewton has the ability to you know he's not a he's not a big Sam type guy who will kind of stamp and scream and get the players performing so he's much more calm and considered so Baz just staying with you for a sec and briefly do you think that that Hewton has the ability to do that? I think in some ways Hewton's had a bit of a perfect storm to deal with so um, one, obviously, he's come in after the tr- after the, the majority of the transfer window, uh, picking up a side that's 
that was already in trouble and has been in trouble for many, many months. Um, but on top of that, it's a squad that doesn't know each other. So we were, I was saying earlier about the identity. We've had, what, was it 14 players come in? So that's a whole side that that's, has to get to know each other and get to learn how each other's plays. And, and we've said, yeah, you, you bring in the, the big names and you expect them to be oven ready and, and ready to go. But it still does take that a bit of gelling to, to get together. And then on top of that, we've had the thing where we've been playing the top six, um, the, the teams that are on form that are doing really, really well. So three factors coming together like that. I think anyone would have struggled with that. Um, but it is, it's... Um, it's going to be really, really difficult to get out of it. You said earlier, if you start the season well, then you can, that can carry you through the rest of the season. You start the season badly, it's going to knock you completely. And even if we have a run of relatively easy games, which we sort of do, um, it's going to be difficult to get over the the, the, the hump, as it were. Mm. Um, Maradon, the Midlands, um, you were uh, one of just a handful of fans who, when the managerial vacancy came up, you said, apart from Sam Allardyce, you also said, oh, Tony Pulis would be a good a, a good signing. And I, I opined after uh, the match midweek last week that Wednesday, I mean, I think we'd agree that they're probably comfortably the worst team we've seen in in amongst, bang on, we've been watching Forest all season. Um, so that's pretty bad. Um, but I also said that, Tony Pulis has got a very similar situation and actually it boils down to the fact that if a club has not been running with a nice coherent strategy running all the way through where players are looking lost, then the manager barely stands a chance. And of course, Pulis did get a win this weekend, but he's had eight matches without a win, which is the worst start in history by a Sheffield Wednesday manager. And we know that he isn't someone who loses every match. So would you say that there's a parallel there with what's happening at Sheffield Wednesday? Yeah, I would. Um, he, he was brought in pretty much straight after the transfer window and, and Gary Monk had been allowed to bring in quite a lot of players as well um, before before Gary Monk got sacked. So I, I was thinking to myself, oh, they, they look quite a decent team. If they hadn't had that points deduction, they'd be pushing for the playoffs too. Um, so um, the, the sort of players that Gary Monk would have been looking for are the polar opposite of the sort of players Tony Pulis would have been looking for. So it's just that whole thing of strategy, just who's picking the players, who's, who's bringing them in, bringing in a manager to suit the players that you've got. It's, it's, it's just symptomatic of a badly run club. And I think they've, they've had off-the-field problems with wages not being paid um, at Wednesday as well. So there's just, just deep-rooted problems. Again, they've got an absentee owner. Um, I think it's a Thai, Thai gentleman who owns them. And it's just... It's just the same. It's the same thing that you get at Forest and a lot of clubs where people may be owning the club for the wrong reasons. Um, it's not that local connection anymore, where people sort of want to run the club for the best benefit of the community and just for to get to keep the club going in in a positive way. It's, it's we we can't kid ourselves. There people from from Greece haven't come to the club because they love Nottingham. They've come to make money in the long term and that's going to sort of colour their judgments at times. It's going to, it's going to influence their decisions. And, but it's just, I don't know. It's just been, we've both been very poorly run in the last year or so, I'd say. Yeah. uh, What I would say is, of course, there's maybe a contrast between uh, on and off the pitch. Um, As Baz mentioned earlier, we've uh, done a couple of interviews 
uh, which uh, by the time you hear this, they should be in your feed. Um, so we've done a couple of interviews, one about um, Forrest's uh, commitments to supporting uh, fans with mental health issues through the Tricky Hub and the It's Tricky to Talk campaign. And then we've also had the interview with Elliot Stanley, who's the chair of the Supporters Trust. And there it just goes to show that, that Forrest actually off the pitch, there is some infrastructure there that was absolutely lacking when Fawaz was in charge because he really, really didn't know how to run a football club and how a football club has a place at the heart of the community. Um, so in that sense, Forest are maybe better than before. But in terms of football strategy, there's a whole other conversation to have there. Uh, Married on the Midlands, just very, very briefly... Um, would you agree with me that Tony Pulis must have been fuming that Stephen Fletcher was let go from Sheffield Wednesday and he's now at Stoke, Pulis's old club, when he's ex- exactly the kind of Tony Pulis player he'd want, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's, that's their problem now. But it's, it's good for us because it keeps one team below us, I suppose. Well, I wasn't saying that as a comment on Sheffield Wednesday because, Stephen, just to come to you, um, there's a rumour that Watford are ready to let Glenn Murray go because he's, he's gone there and he's not played. And of course, he is a Hewton player. He's a player who's played under Hewton for many years. And he also offers something that our current centre forwards do not in terms of he'll offer a different option for how we play because it means that we can go high and long if we need to. He's someone who puts himself about. He's 37 years old, so he's not going to play much. But when you talk about Hewton having a chance to bring in some of his own players, do you think that's the kind of thing we're talking about? Definitely. And somebody like... Glenn Murray, I would welcome into the squad. I think because of what you mentioned there, he he's a different type of striker to what we have, and uh, he's a real presence when he's on the pitch. You know, he's a handful for defenders in terms of his physical strength, and and uh, even though he's thirty seven, he's not a player who relies on pace. So I wouldn't be worried about him coming in and you know not quite being with it anymore or off the pace. So. His experience as well would be vital. And given the position that we find ourselves in, somebody like Glenn Murray with his experience and his nous in the championship, I think would be a real asset. And we're probably in a position where Watford, given the quality in that, that they've got in their squad, probably don't need a Glenn Murray quite as much as we do right now. So combine that with the link up with Chris Hewton, you know, I think that would be a really smart signing. Baz, just to come to you before we take a little break. Um, <laughs> you know who I'm going to say. Go on. Fideli <laughs> Adebola. <laughs> yeah, um, okay. Um, so, okay. I think so, he's retired now. <laughs> but it's exactly the same thing, isn't it? It's that thing where actually we've got 10 minutes to go and we're either holding on or or we just need that little break and you put someone like that on the pitch, change the way you play, as you say, go go long and and it can make all the difference. And it's one of those things that just, it, it's, it's a plan B and having a plan B can make a difference. Just to, I mean, we're going quite a long way back in time. Well, we're going like <laughs> 10 years back in time, but um, I'll always remember the bloke next to us. He used to call him Tom Bowler and he and said, you never know what you're going to get with him. And then we said, we looked at each other and said, actually, you know exactly what you're going to get with him. And I think that's, that's what you're looking for with the Glen Murray. But what I was going to actually come to you with um, was, isn't there a danger? And Maradon the Midlands, I'll ask you in a sec as well. Isn't there a danger that that kind of experience, you know what you're going to get? Well, we thought we were going to get that with 
a few other players who we've signed who apparently have championship experience and are the wrong side of 30 and would be expensive, but it's probably worth it because they'll get you over the line. What do you think, Bas? Um, yes, absolutely. And we've talked already this season about the recruitment policy. Um, the thing with Murray would be, yes, he's Hewton knows him. And, and so if it's a Hewton recommendation that's going in, then at least we can... It's on the manager's head then, rather than it being a decision that's taken that the manager then has to deal with, which is a very different situation. Um, it might be what the manager knew they were buying into at the time, but it is when it when it goes wrong, it's where does the responsibility lie? And it's still the manager that carries the can. So if it's Hutton signing and he carries the can for it, that's a very different situation. So, Maradon the Midlands, on that topic, and just very briefly, do you think that that suggests that, uh, reading between the lines, that maybe uh, some of those 30-something midfielders that we've referred to, um, and maybe even one or two of the defenders, are players that were perhaps signed by the club rather than necessarily by the manager, even though for the fact he was a, he was a different manager then? Um, I don't know because from from the noises I've heard, it's, it's sort of they they heap the play, blame squarely on the shoulders of Sabri, saying we gave him uh, free reign to sign players this summer. So I I just, I just don't know. You, you, it could be Sabri, it could be the board, but whoever it was, it's, it's not worked out well. And I, and I personally wouldn't sign Glenn Murray. I think at thirty seven, having played football at thirty seven. Um, He's way too old to play for Championship football at 37. I'd rather let one of the youngsters have some game time. Um, And with the the prospect of Lewis Graben's contract running out at the end of the season, even maybe looking long-term and trying to find a a more permanent replacement from the lower leagues this January. You're saying Glenn Murray's not not as good as Slatan Ibrahimovic? Yeah, that's exactly... (laughs) If you look at their body shapes, I'm not even sure they're the same species. (laughs) <laughs> and then we look at your body shape, Maradon, the Midlands, uh, as, a, as a veteran striker yourself, and uh, we can draw our own conclusions. Um, we're going to take a little break now, and uh, we're going to head over to Jeremy with the Forest Ramble sketch. At the 1865 Forest Ramble, we are pleased to work in partnership with Flatback 4. They offer forest-inspired t-shirts, polo shirts, hoodies and jumpers. Just visit 1865.football slash flatback. Choose something from the Nottingham Forest Embroidered Club range and then enter the code 1865 to receive 10% off and support our podcast at the same time. For whatever item you buy, if you include the code 1865 at the checkout, you will be supporting our podcast. Can I find the details on social media? Absolutely. Follow 1865 Forest Rumble on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for all the details. The 1865 Forest Ramble Sketch by Jeremy Davis We've all been there. You're in the middle of an important conversation and suddenly you get an irresistible itch somewhere you really don't want to scratch in public. You're trying to appear suave, sophisticated and possibly slightly enigmatic. And by the way, why is it that football has its own interpretations of certain words, enigma being one of them, It has such negative connotations in relation to a footballer. Basically, it means he or she plays shit in big games. Whereas in other areas of life, such as, for example, dating, it means mysterious, possibly slightly dangerous, no doubt sexy, and probably French. 
Mercurial is another one, albeit at the opposite end of the scale. In normal life, it means inconsistent and unpredictable, whereas in football it's basically a synonym for skillful, as in the mercurial Maradona. Nike even used the term on a brand of football boot, which seems like it should be a tough sell even for their famously talented ad folks. The Nike Mercurial Vapor Boot. It's unpredictable. But what the heck, who needs consistency? Anyway, I digress. Like I said, we've all experienced the unfortunately timed itch, so it wasn't hard to feel some sympathy for Chris Hughton the other night in his post-match interview pitch side after the Sheffield Wednesday game. It all started comfortably enough as he expressed his relief at ending the winless run, but when he got on to talking about Alex Mighton's performance, it was clear that something was up, as he started fidgeting in that way one does when trying to get the itch to scratch itself, or somehow move something internally to do it for you. The interviewer persisted with his theme, wittering on about Mighton's pace and trickery, and you could see the internal torment as Hewton fought the urge to scratch. Finally, inevitably, the itch won, as it always does, as he slowly raised his finger to his ear and, after an epic internal struggle, stuck it in for a good wiggle. The relief was palpable, actually a decent metaphor for the result, but as with any persistent itch, it just wasn't enough. He talked some more about Wednesday's style, their form, their threat, but that inner conflict was still there, visible in every twitch of his shoulders. Slowly, inexorably, the finger rose once more, and it says a huge amount for our manager's strength of character that he was able to summon up the will to deflect it from its true path so that it missed his ear hole, managing only a light touch on the earlobe before being lowered out of sight once more. Now, the itch clearly wasn't going away, but Hewton must have decided that sticking your finger in your ear for a good waggle wasn't a good look for a TV interview, especially as one's natural instinct is always to inspect said digit afterwards, which wouldn't have come across well on camera. The next time the finger appeared, he was able somehow to summon up the willpower to just scratch at some of that silver hair behind his ear before the itch made one final attempt to break him up at the very end of the interview, but once more, our iron-willed would-be saviour was able to restrict himself to a light touch on the earlobe before no doubt retreating to some private space as soon as the camera was off him for a good scratch and the chance to inspect his waxy hall properly. And what of the boss of our vanquished opponents currently struggling to implement the doctrine of Tody Pulis? Well, with Big Sam back in management at West Brom, unsubstantiated rumour has it that a TV production company has been in touch with a new idea for a show where Allardyce and Pulis go walking in the English countryside with Neil Warnock discussing their thinking on football tactics. The working title is Walking with Dinosaurs. Welcome back to the 1865 Forest Ramble for December 2020. Uh, joined here by Stephen, Baz and Maradon the Midlands once again. Um, let's continue that conversation about what's happening on the pitch before we move on to a few other things. Um, we talked about confidence. The other thing that I think has been a big accusation, Stephen, has been at times a lack of desire from the players. So again, referring to maybe some of the new signings and even Joe Worrell you know, was clearly implying this in his interview, the idea that maybe there's a lack of desire because people are there not through investment in what's happening at the club, but because they're doing it for a job. It's quite a big accusation to make. What do you think? It is, but I, I, I do wonder if the, uh, the, the events of the summer and the, you know, the, the upheaval with, 14 new players, a new manager, and, and just everything that's been going on around that has has 
caused the dressing room to, you know, they've, they've lost a bit of faith. They've lost, they have lost some desire. And I think that's translated onto the pitch when you, when you look at it, incidences like, you know, mentioned earlier, we're, we're not winning those 50-50 balls. You know, we don't seem to have that desire to compete, win tackles, win those 50-50s not marking runners from a corner, letting people go, letting people run past you, put a ball in the box and we can see the goal. It's moments like that where I think that that upheaval and that uncertainty manifests itself on the pitch. And that's it, that's obviously something we've got to stamp out and we've got to stamp it out quickly. And I do wonder if the only way of doing that is to give Hewton the free reign to bring more of his own players in and just create his own group of players and, and kind of restore the the spirit and the togetherness that we actually saw under Sabri Lamushi for the first half of last season. And I think that definitely carried us through a lot of games, particularly where we perhaps weren't on topping games, but we were finding a way of getting results. So that, and that also breeds confidence and a belief in what's going on at the football club. And, you know, I, 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 that's the only way I can really see us starting to, to kind of claw that back. OK, how many players would you think would be sensible to bring in? If, if you look across the team, I'd probably say four or five. You know, maybe some strengthening in the midfield, up front as well, at Alara Glen Murray. Uh, and fullbacks as well, maybe a right back, somebody who can challenge Cyrus Christie. I know he's been, not to name names as such, but he's been somebody who's been targeted by the fans and they've said basically he's not, not been good enough. He's been giving away too many goals and letting players kind of run, have free roam of that left-hand side of the pitch. So it's, I would say at least four or five just, to allow Houston to stop putting his stamp on things. I don't think we're going to quite see what we had a couple of years ago under Ito Karanka after that Preston game where it was, he sort of walked into the dressing room and said, right, I've had enough of you lot. I'm going to bring in pretty much a new team because that's what's required to, to get us out of the mess we're in. I don't think we're going to quite get to those kind of levels, but certainly four or five new faces to freshen it up and, and allow Houston to put his stamp on things. Mm, I think that's quite controversial, to be perfectly honest. Um, are you concerned? Right, I'm just going to, before I move on to other people, um, are you not concerned about, firstly, creating another bomb squad and secondly, financial fair play? I, I mean, I am concerned about those things, but I, I think it's just a product of of the the instability that was created through the summer. And it probably highlights just how poor the business was over the summer to bring in all those players. And if, the, if it is true that Sabri Lamushi was given, you know, given free reign to, to bring his own players in, and then we've ended up with 14 new players, that's just a product of the instability and that kind of vicious cycle that you, as a club, you can get yourself into. But the one thing that does give me hope is the fact that we've got Chris Hewton, a man whose record at this level speaks for itself and, I would be, you know, very surprised if he doesn't at least start to turn that culture around and foster a bit more of a, a collective kind of spirit amongst the squad. But 
I think there's just been too many instances where players have shown themselves to be not good enough. So we've got to we've got to make some changes somewhere to to, to kind of put that to to one side. I mean, interestingly, the, the the first sort of when we'd made sort of four or five signings, generally the fans were on board with those. So saying, okay, signing Colback and Blackett and Lyle Taylor and Luke Freeman, um, those are good signings. And apart from Taylor. Um, the others have all underwhelmed. I mean, you could argue Taylor's underwhelmed as well. That's a whole separate conversation, which we'll come, we might come on to later. But you could say that actually some of those who were brought in early on have underwhelmed. Then you've got all the others who were brought in where the transfer, where forest transfer policy just seems to go a bit mental. Um, I can give you two examples of why I don't think that all the players brought in were Sabri Lamushi players. Um, one is Cafu, who was a, uh, a loan swap deal for Thiago Silva and Sabri didn't want uh, Thiago Silva to leave. Um, and therefore um, it looks as though Cafu was basically more or less imposed. Now he's shown signs of promise, which is good. So let's not grumble too much about that. But the other is Cyrus Christie because at the start of the season, I think there are indications that, um, well, Jordan Gabriel was, was playing in the first couple of matches of the season. Jenkinson was on the bench. It looked as though Derek Hall was going to be in and around the squad. Now, Gabriel's gone out on loan, getting some good game time. Great. Jenkinson is a mainstay on the bench, and Derek isn't in the 25-man squad. So um, it makes you wonder, actually, if the Cyrus Christie signing was a Sabri signing. Just throwing that out there. Maradon the Midlands, I'm going to come to you with something that Paul Taylor was commenting on in a... um, recently, which is uh, signing 14 players in COVID times... Um, the other thing that perhaps we couldn't, we didn't think about beforehand, but it creates a problem because if you've got players who are moving to Nottingham, maybe leaving their families behind, maybe staying in a hotel, but uh, all they're doing is they're going to training and then they're going back to their, their flat or their hotel room or their house by themselves. And the players aren't getting any chance to bond as people. They're not being able to go, you know, for meals out and nights out and to go on, you know, golfing, uh, you know, golfing sessions or whatever it is that players do. Um, Do you think that's contributed to the disconnect within the squad? Yeah, I think Steve Hodge made a similar point on the radio the other night uh, where they, where that sort of team bonding exercise where you'd all go out for a drink or a meal or whatever um, hasn't been, hasn't been happening. And yeah, that, that maybe does contribute to uh, lack of team spirit um there's obviously i think there's maybe a few cliques in there. there's maybe a portuguese clique um where players sort of of some same nationalities are naturally going to hang out together that that maybe doesn't help the team spirit either um but it didn't I mean, hurt I mean, last season though did it no it didn't hurt last season but, but i think maybe this time maybe it is and um I, I, I wouldn't want to bring in too many players now, really. Um, if anything, I'd, I'd try and trim the squad down, and maybe cancel some of the loans and um, try and ship out as many players as possible. Um, I think we've got enough in the squad to just about stay up. If we, if we can make a decent long-term signing, I'm fine. I'm happy with that. But I've, I've just got a feeling we're, we're just going to try and make some more short-term panic signings. It's just going to exasperate the situation. Um what, what, why we signed Christie when we had Dariqua and Jenkinson at the club just doesn't make any sense. Um, same with Ionu um, when we'd already signed Blackett, that that covered a couple of positions. 
and base so didn't make any sense um so i I'd really want to sort of trim it down. If, I know we, the, the problem we're going to have is nobody's going to want to take our players now. Um, well, would you argue that Mbeso, apart from the fact that obviously he's played, he's played a couple of matches in the last week, and when he came in in his first couple of matches, he looked he looked decent. Um, but he's one for the future at least. Whereas some of the other players, you kind of going, well, looking at their age and their track record, at least with Mbeso, you kind of think, well, that could be uh, however much they paid PSG for him that could be a good investment for the future. So there's a difference there, isn't there? It could be. I can't see us ever getting that money back, though. Um, I, I'd honestly, I, I just, he looks a bit, little bit too small to be a top centre-half to me. Um, and I just, don't, I just don't think this is the environment for him to flourish and, and uh, grow his career. I'd, I'd be surprised if we ever recoup that money again for MB. So I'm, I'm happy to be proved wrong. I hope I'm proved wrong. But at the moment, that's, that's the way I feel. Okay, and and Baz, the other thing about um, living in COVID times and signing lots of players, would you agree that as fans, we're not able to go to matches, we're dependent upon iFollow, and there's obviously all the iFollow issues, or if we live locally, Radio Nottingham. Um, It's very difficult to kind of emotionally invest in new players when you've not really had a chance to see them play you've not you've not seen them in the flesh yeah in fact um this that i think this has been the hardest bit of the last few weeks is because i mean if you're going to games and we're playing awful you then have that chat when you're walking back to the car afterwards with the other fans around you going did you see that and and you have that you have some togetherness with it whereas today now we're all we're all separate and so the only thing is the, the the brashness of social media, which isn't helpful in any way whatsoever. So all there is, is the negativity. And that's all we get to carry with us now. And you don't get any of the, the positive. And so without seeing the players, without watching them, seeing their body language in that, that close-up kind of way and seeing how they react and how they talk to each other, and, and without having the, the, the bloke next to you that you turn around and say, what the hell are you on about? And having a little argument that ends up in being a laugh and all that, all the stuff that makes it being a fan, we've lost all that. And so that makes the struggle uh, that we're in, the, the difficulty, it makes, it, I mean, I was saying to my dad, I don't feel any connection with the club. I don't feel any connection with the players. And he was like, I've been going since 1992 and I'm thinking it's not really worth it. And that's because we don't get to, to be there. And that's a really big worrying problem. Yeah, and that's a worrying problem across football, isn't it? And, and Nottingham's been dealt a, a rough hand when, you know, some were arguing that Nottingham was in tier three when the situation there was no no worse than in some other cities. Um, there's a whole separate conversation to be had there, but we've had a... You've seen the difference, Stephen, haven't you? Even having 2,000 fans in the ground... It really galvanises things, and I would argue that you look at some of the bigger characters in our in our in our team. So players like Samba, uh, players like um, Lolly, and and even Worrell, and actually even players like Ryan Yates and Sammy Amiobi. Sometimes when Yates goes into a tackle or Amiobi does one of his little pirouettes the fans get up and it brings the whole team up, doesn't it? So I think we've got quite a lot of players in that, in that team, in that squad, who actually are massively missing us as well. 
Definitely. And if you look again to compare to, to, to last season, the way that the fans and the team bonded, you know, when Bree Samba came in and he was almost an instant hero with the fans, with his performances, there was a real bond that developed between the supporters and the team. And we definitely lost that with the with the lockdown and everything that's happened since March. And that, that connection between the the fans and, and the and the players on the pitch. Yeah, I think we are missing that. And during this run of games as well, we've we've come up against teams who've been able to have two thousand fans in the stadium and it's definitely made a difference. One from the atmosphere, but also two for the home team. It's given them probably an extra couple of percentage worth of of kind of motivation because they they're playing for their fans again. And I do think some of the games that we've played this season we probably would have got some results out of had we got even 2,000 fans in the stadium. Um, I know you, you can't blame it too much because there's obviously teams in a far worse position than ourselves or teams who haven't yet been able to play in front of their supporters. So, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a two-way thing. The players still need to be showing that desire and that hunger to win games, even without the fans there. But... Um, yeah, it's it's a tough situation. I think out of all of the teams in this country, we've probably felt the effects of it worse than the most. I mean, if you look at our record since March, I, I'm sure it's one of the it's certainly the worst in the championship. It, yeah, it, it technically became the worst when we lost against Brentford. We became the worst championship team since uh, since lockdown. Um, because at least Birmingham had managed, Birmingham managed to win that day or something like that. So, so we have been, um, and it's been pretty bleak. Um, the other thing, married on the Midlands, is that obviously even two thousand fans can influence the referee. So at Millwall, you could argue that when the ball reared up and hit Mbeso's hand, if there'd been two thousand Millwall fans screaming at the ref, he might have been more likely to give the penalty. But equally, in the Watford match. Um, Nate Chalabar surely would have had that red card um, if there'd been fans yelling for it as well as just the Forest bench. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, that's exactly... He would have got sent off, I think. And um, But it, it swings and roundabouts. You win some, you lose some. It's, uh, that's, it's always been the case in football. Um, but we have, I think we have suffered. Um, and when I think back to that Leeds game, um, I think that was the last one I went to. And just the 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 crowd on that night and the the effects we had and and it really was like a twelfth man situation. The atmosphere was absolutely brilliant, and just to contrast that it so contrasts so starkly with what they're playing in in now um I think it, the players can't help but miss miss the crowd yeah, and it comes down to as well going back to that issue of desire. Um, the Leeds match was a great example of that because we, I genuinely still think we could have lost that. But with the fans, that was one of the best atmospheres we've had at the City Ground in many, many years. And and therefore, we ended up winning it 2-0 rather than maybe losing it 2 or being a BLC team, maybe 3-4-1 or actually if Leeds had got back into the match. So I think that the, the, the influence of having fans in the ground cannot be, um, cannot be denied. Baz, do you want to come in there? Uh, well, so, yeah, the only thing I certainly I think Stephen, you touched on it there. Part of it is, and I think the reason it is quite clear, lockdown was when things started going wrong for us. Um, um, 
I can even remember speculating, maybe lockdown will work for us because we have this this style of play where we only have 20% possession and, and, and the fans sometimes get on the back and stuff. But I think part of it actually was last season, it was like we as fans fell back in love with the club under Lamushi. That that first half a season under Lamushi, it was absolutely amazing the relationship we had with the club, the club had with us, the players had with us. And it was it was after so much turmoil over the, the few years before, it was like we fell back in love with it and then we had it ripped away from us. So maybe that's just hurt us more than it has for other clubs. Mm. And Baz, I'm just going to stay with you on a slightly different subject, um, just to change a topic and going back to off-field strategy. Now, because you and I were having this chat with uh, the Supporters Trust, um, Elliot and the Supporters Trust, he did say that one of the big problems that the club are admitting to now is that communication with the fans hasn't been good enough. Um, let's just talk about the the Danny Taylor article briefly. Um now, you and I, under four wows, we were very vocal about the fact that it didn't really make much difference who the manager of the club was then because everything was such a mess. Um, as we've discussed, there is a little bit more happening off the pitch now with Forrest, um, but things like um, transfers and, um, you know, rumours of interference with the manager, you know, Danny Taylor reported on Yanis Ferencos apparently coming down onto the uh, pitch side and into the tunnel and yelling at the manager and there's Maranakis' Zoom call and everything. Um, but while fans still aren't going to the matches, that comes back to something that Elliot said in that interview, which is that in the absence of something coming from the club, especially with social media, fans will fill the void, won't they? And uh, To be fair, we do that. We, we've sat here and we've had a chat and said, I'm not really sure what's going on, but it does look like this. And that's speculation on our part. And if, yeah, if, if the club can't tell us what's going on, and I, I fully, and Elliot made the point, there's stuff that he's been told that he's not allowed to tell us, which absolutely makes sense. There's a, there's a whole load of business stuff. There's a multi-million pound company and all that stuff. But in the absence of information, we are going to try and put our own story to it. That's just, that's what human beings do. We find patterns and we, we fill in the gaps. And so that's going to happen. So anything the club can do to make it better. And I think actually when Maranakis came in and when Mick Randall came in, there was a point where the communication from the club took a huge step upwards. I mean, it was from starting from a very low base, but it feels like in the last year, probably the last year, um, maybe a little bit longer, it's actually started slipping back down and it's been getting worse. And it's like they've, they've lost track of something. They've, they've lost uh, some way of doing that. And that's the worrying bit. It's, it's, it's not that, that there was a period, especially Nick Randall, I was really, really impressed with him. And he would come out and he would take the questions and he would say stuff. And even if you disagreed with him, at least he was putting his head above the parapet. And it feels a bit like now, the club is just batting down the hatches and isn't saying anything at all, which is which isn't great. Yeah, and and Nick Randall, I mean Danny Taylor made the point that uh, Nick Randall was very much the front man, and of course, um, and we discover now that his role at the club, although he's still chairman, he's now much more of a non-executive role. So again, that's where communication is helpful. It'd be nice to know these things. It's not essential, but in terms of the club and the fan base feeling connected, that kind of thing is helpful. And on a similar topic, Stephen, and this is the last thing we're going to mention today, um, there was that rumour going round um, about, what, 10 days ago? Oh, the club is up for sale. And that is a classic 
example of what we're talking about, isn't it? In the absence of genuine communication, people will fill the void. And as far as I can tell, this was started by a YouTuber who, um, you know, came up with some non-specific reasons why the club would be up for sale and suddenly it snowballed. Tell us about it from your point of view. Yeah, it, it appeared to, yeah, come out of nowhere, this one. and Well, it did. It literally yeah. did. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. From what I understand, this, this YouTuber, he, um, he said it came from a source on Facebook who was pretty spot on with these sorts of things, but he couldn't disclose, obviously, who that source was. So, it was made it down just, the pub. Yeah. Uh, so you've just... Yeah, given as well, this was in the middle of that bad run of form and just after the Danny Taylor article had come out as well and fans were probably reading that and, and being feeling concerned about how the club was being run. They were probably clinging on to this idea that perhaps new ownership would come in and maybe there'd, there'd be a change of, of operation. But this this story, I mean, there were quite a few people who did go back to him and say, look, what's your source on this? Where's this come from? They'd they recognised that it wasn't coming from a, you know, an official or a reputable journalist. Um, <laughs> but I've had fans of other clubs who've said to me, "Oh, I've I've heard Forrester up for sale. Is that what's going on with that? Apparently, you're up for sale." And I'm looking, thinking, how on earth has it got to this point where even fans of other clubs are are talking about this unsubstantiated rumour? Um, I think it was. Paul Taylor, wasn't it? He he contacted the club for clarification and they basically came out and said, it's not true, the club isn't up for sale and kind of put, put the rumours to bed. But it's an example where social media, it can just take one little non-story and turn it into, into something that snowballs and creates uncertainty and, and causes fans to to kind of worry about the future of the club and that is a that is a concern yeah well and 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 that's where we leave it because um i think that's a fairly um that's fairly emblematic of the situation Forrester in at the moment isn't it there's little bits of uh, voids everywhere on the pitch off the pitch which we're asking questions about now on the pitch well, this time next month, we'll hopefully have a better idea of what's going, what's going to happen on the pitch, whether we have made new signings and so on, whether there has been an upturn in results that is a bit more lasting. Certainly, it was very important to not lose against Millwall after beating Sheffield Wednesday. Um, but that's where we leave it for this month. So thank you very much, listeners, for joining us through what's been a very, very turbulent 2020. Um, we say thank you to Stephen and to Baz and Maradona Midlands. Uh, we also say thank you to Jeremy and to Tom for joining us throughout the year and to all the guests that we've had on the podcast. So uh, various people, Mark Dennison, George Harvey, um, We've had Keith of the Talking Reds book. We've had the Supporters Trust. We've had Beth talking about the Tricky Hub. So thank you to all of you. And um, listeners, we will be back very shortly. We will still have match reports. We will be back with more content, more discussion, more long-form content as well. Um, in the meantime, we wish you a very peaceful and restful Christmas. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.